Recovery Elevator, episode 29. I can't even express the, the joy that I have. I'm free. I'm free of it. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to my Recovery Elevator sobriety app on my phone, I have been sober for 11 months, three weeks, and six days, which is one day shy of a year. And that year would entail one year without drinking alcohol, a milestone I never thought I would achieve. But I am not going to get into that topic today, even though this podcast comes out on September 7th, which will mark my one year of sobriety. But it is not in the bag yet. This is one day at a time, and it's Labor Day weekend. But you bet your ass I'm going to cruise right through this weekend as sober as the day I was born. Well, at least that's the plan. I've got a couple emails and calls from people saying, hey, for your one year of sobriety, why don't you do your story? I've interviewed a lot of other people, and that's probably my favorite part about this podcast is hearing everybody else's story. This podcast is not about me. It's about you guys, but I've actually never done my story. It's terrifying. So the next two podcast episodes after this one, it's going to be part one, part two, not because my story is so amazing. I just want to take some time and do this right. But here we are in the present recovery elevator podcast episode 2929. On today's podcast, I've got Jeff. He's 45 years old from Minneapolis. He's been sober since 2013 and he got sober without AA. And before we get into our topic today, which has been a baffling one for me for ages. The topic of today is why us alcoholics, we can't stop drinking after we take that first drink. But before we get into that, let's hear from our sponsor, Sober Nation. Sober Nation is the largest online recovery community and treatment resource center. They provide treatment resources to those struggling with addiction as well to family members who are caught in the crossfire. On top of that, Sober Nation is a huge community of good people who share their experience with each other. They have informative content, recent recovery and addiction news, as well as an entire clothing line, which helps expand the culture of recovery. They can be found at www.SoberNation.com. Once again, that's SoberNation.com. Have you ever wondered why it's becoming more increasingly difficult to stop drinking after you've already started drinking? I was a normal drinker for a long time. Now, it's not a switch that was flipped. It didn't happen overnight, but there was a day I woke up and was like, yeah, I had one too many last night when I wasn't planning on having one too many last night. And that's a transition that everybody needs to be cognizant of. Whether you're listening to this as an alcoholic or a non-alcoholic, if there's a friend that you've been hanging out with for a long time or a family member, and you've noticed there's been a slight progression that it's harder for them to put that last drink down, or when someone says, you want to get one more, they're already waiting at the bar for that one more, you might want to have a talk. In the summer of 2005, my brother and I were living in Edwards, Colorado. We were both working in restaurants, and when we get off around 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night, we go back to our house. Well, let's call it what it really was, our parents' house. We're both living at home after college, and it was a really fun time. And we would have a nightcap. We would play beer pong, and we watch Reno 911. The last 10 seconds was all true, except the nightcap part for me. We would be watching an episode of Reno 911 and my brother would have some scotch with ice cubes and I would also have some scotch with ice cubes with him. The difference was after that episode finished, he's like, all right, Paul, I'm going to bed. See you tomorrow. All right. Good night, Mark. And I would just kind of meander around for a moment. Maybe go look in the pantry, see if my mom's been at Costco lately. 
Thanks, mom. But this was a battle that I lost 99 out of 100 times. It could be 100 out of 100 because I'm not thinking of that one time where I didn't win this battle. It was after I started drinking, I would come home. My brother and I would have a nightcap. And I would look up in my parents' alcohol collection and I would keep drinking, whether it be a couple more shots, a couple more beers or whatnot, whether it be a half of a pint of vodka, I would keep drinking. And I didn't want to be a bad roommate to my mom and dad who are so gracefully open to having me back home after college. So I replaced all the alcohol that I drank. I would write the name of the alcohol on a sticky note and go to the liquor store and say, yeah, do you have any Glen Levitt Final Reserve aged 72 years from Oak Ireland stock Q4. And the guy would go, hmm, let me check. Go down, pull up the step ladder, go in the attic, dust off a bottle and said, yeah, that'll be $117.45. And I'm just like, oh, shit. Come on, dad. That got pricey. But it has always been baffling to me why it was such a challenge for me to stop drinking while on the outside looking in, my brother, after the episode had finished, he'd be like, all right, dude, going to bed. See you later, bro. It was that easy for him. But for me, I had an internal dialogue, an internal battle, sometimes for 10, 15, 20 minutes, telling myself, like, all right, man, we're, we're not going to do this. We've drank the last 38 nights in a row from this pantry. And then tomorrow morning, we're going to go to the liquor store and act surprised when the clerk says, oh, you drank a $45 bottle of vodka. Rick... The guy at the liquor store, he's on to you, Paul. I think his name is Rick. You get a point. But during that internal dialogue, my mind would always justify it or spin it in a way where it would make sense. But really, all that is was my addiction lying to me in my own voice. I have found in my drinking, if I have one beer, it's about a 20% chance that I will stop drinking after that. Or I could. If I have two beers in a night, the chances of me stopping after that are pretty much nil zip. And I remember if I went to an event where it wasn't possible to have 15 beers, I simply wouldn't drink. That would be a lot easier. In fact, way easier than me having one beer and then stopping. Simply not drinking was a hell of a lot easier than stopping after three, which my record for that is probably 0 and 762. But let's take a look of why this happens. So even though the World Health Organization classified alcoholism as a disease in 1956, and millions of medical professionals also call alcoholism a disease, which it is, many people still refuse to accept this fact. There are many misguided individuals, including some doctors and counselors, trying to teach alcoholics or heavy drinkers how to become social drinkers or that whole moderation thing. And that's a myth. It doesn't work. It's all too easy for those folks who only see it from the outside to consider it as a sign of weakness or lack of willpower. But that reality is inaccurate. No one would judge a diabetic for creating their own disease. Yet alcoholics are constantly labeled as narcissistic, weak, and simply don't have the strength and the courage to stop drinking. There is an undeniable genetic component to this disease. We are born with an innate predisposition to become addicted. What comes together is a perfect storm. And a lot of the information in this podcast comes from an article from a blog called Courage to Change from Wendy Perkins. There will be a link to this article on the recoveryelevator.com website under podcasts, episode 29. 
Alcoholism is a chemical disease because it breaks down differently in the stomach and has an entirely different effect on the brain of the alcoholic than other non-alcoholics. It is biological, meaning that the chemical predisposition is inherited. Okay, the way the body normally deals with alcohol is well known. It's not that big of mystery. The liver breaks the alcohol into a very toxic substance called acetaldehyde. This is then broken down into acetic acid, which is vinegar. And finally, the acetic acid is broken down into water and carbon dioxide to be eliminated through the kidneys and the lungs. Okay, here is where a slight difference occurs with an alcoholic. The acetaldehyde, which I'm probably pronouncing wrong, in an alcoholic, some of that goes to the brain after episodes of heavy drinking. And if you went to any four-year university, you probably did a lot of heavy drinking. This acetaldehyde, when it gets to the brain, it interacts with a substance called dopamine to form THIQ. And we're just going to call it THIQ from here on out because the real name is tetrahydroquinoline. And me saying that out loud is like the first time I ordered quinoa at a restaurant. It's spelled quinoa. It's pronounced quinoa. It, it just doesn't make any sense. So I'm going to call it THIQ from here on out. So once this THIQ is formed, it doesn't go away. Even if the alcoholic stops drinking. What this means, hate to say it, irreversible. It's a one-way street. It is there for life, and the only way for the alcoholic to recover from this chemical imbalance is they got to stop drinking. It's alcohol that triggers off the compulsion. Don't take that first drink, and you will be free from the bondage of alcohol. And, guys, that's actually the end of the podcast because I just realized that's the whole solution to the problem. Recovery Elevator Episode 29 was the last podcast episode because you just got to stop drinking. Actually, unfortunately, that's about a third of the problem is stopping drinking. That's why I started this whole podcast because I just stopped drinking for two and a half years. There's the mental, the physical, and the psychological component and the spiritual and probably five or six more, but there's the three major components that I talk about in this podcast. Okay, the THIQ that has attached itself to the dopamine neurotransmitter becomes dormant when drinking alcohol seizes. However, it does not go away, but like a dormant volcano, and this compulsive drinking will start again. I've heard a wise man once say, one drink is too many and 100,000 is not enough. The wisdom of this saying cannot be denied. Trying to control your drinking after a few drinks is like putting in Third Eye Blind's sophomore release album, playing one song, and then pressing stop. It's just not possible, guys. It's just not possible. So when alcoholics or a brain that is predispositioned to becoming an alcoholic begins their drinking career in their early teens, 20s, or whenever, they do not know that they are in danger of becoming alcoholics. By the time heavy, abusive drinking begins, it's way too late. This THIQ, or tetrahydroquinoline, oh, whatever, once it's formed in the brain, it's active and highly addictive. And this is the basis for the physical compulsion to drink. Taken into conjunction with the evidence of hereditary basis to alcoholism, it is a known fact that alcoholics are born with a predisposition to the disease of alcoholism. Perhaps the most difficult pill to swallow for an alcoholic is simply not drinking is not enough. That's why I do this podcast. It's part of my own program. I've heard people say, I'm not an alcoholic. For Lent last year, I quit for six weeks. To tell you the truth, anyone can quit drinking for an extended period of time, whether it's a week, a month, 90 days, 
two and a half years like myself. And that's not chump change, but it doesn't mean you're not an alcoholic if you simply quit drinking for a week. So let's talk about the progressive part of this disease. As this THIQ accumulates, our disease of addiction progresses. The more we drink, the more THIQ is accumulated and the urge to drink only increases. I've also read that this THIQ stuff is more powerful than morphine. Thus, this is a very real tangible basis of our insanity. Why do people and myself keep drinking when the drinking has caused so much turmoil in their lives? Why do people, including myself, put alcohol in front of everything in life? Number one on the priority list. It's very common for alcoholics to put alcohol above their family, above their friends, even above their job. So this THIQ, it's always there. I've got a lot of it or at least the IQ part of it in my brain. (laughs) Just kidding. But it's always there. It's dormant, and it's ready to rock and roll the instant I put alcohol into my system. And I've learned this a bunch of times. There's no ramp-up phase after you stop drinking for a period of time. When I took that first drink after several months of sobriety or two and a half years, it was like my last drink was the night before. There was no buildup of tolerance or no responsible drinking days or whatever the hell that means. I was a race car on red, ready to go. So I hope that sheds some light. And I know it helps shed some light on me of why I couldn't stop drinking after I took that first drink. And the problem with our addiction, talking to us in our brains, lying to us in our own voices, that it tells me that it's going to be different the next time I take that next drink. And that's what I was told every time I had a long duration of sobriety. It's like, you know what? You're not an alcoholic. Dude, we just went two and a half years without drinking. No freaking way you're an alcoholic. Next beer we have, because you're not an alcoholic, you're going to be able to stop after the first beer. Let's give this a try, Pablo. All right, we all know that's complete BS, just my addiction talking. So let's get to the interview segment of the podcast today. Jeff, how are you? I'm great, thanks. Jeff, fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us on this beautiful, sunny morning in Montana. What's, What's the weather like in Minnesota? Actually, it's pretty nice. It's sunny, um, a little too humid, but it's not snowing, and I'm thankful for that. How about that? (laughs) The snow (laughs) is coming to both our states shortly. Yeah. The recovery elevator, Jeff is 45. He lives in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and he has gotten sober without AA. He's been sober for nearly two years. And Jeff, tell me when you got sober, the exact date. My sobriety date is November 20th, 2013. Wait a second. So that is close to Thanksgiving. Am I correct? Yeah, I guess so. And and so I've heard a lot of people say that getting sober during the holidays is a bad time, like there ever is a good time to get sober. Do you remember two years ago, we're thinking like, you know what, I'm going to wait till after Thanksgiving to get sober, but you got sober before Thanksgiving. What was that like getting sober during the holidays? Well, it had been such a struggle before that. I, I was so ready for it that I wasn't even aware of what the holiday was or anything like that. It was at that by that time that I would just be happy to, to be sober for, for four hours. So for me, it, no day was any day except for just trying to like get through sober. Just didn't make any difference. Yeah, Jeff, let's talk about that struggle. Let's, let's reference the podcast title for a moment, Recovery Elevator. Talk to me about your elevator. When did you decide... Well, you decided on November 20th, 2013 to get off that elevator, but talk to me about before that moment. Lead me up to that point when you did decide to get off the elevator and and tell us what it was like. Well, I guess for me, just a little bit of back history first. I finally 
didn't get to decide. Um, I got put into detox in 2012. My wife had finally had enough. And I don't mean that as in like she was leaving, but she didn't know what else to do. So I went to detox. I fought and screamed the best I could, but I went to detox. I got put into that for a few days to basically to survive with without alcohol. And then I went into a 13-week program, which is basically an outpatient program that was basically surrounded by the the idea of cognitive behavior therapy. It was there that I started to learn about all kinds of things like health realization, uh, relapse warning signs, how to take personal inventory. There's all kinds of tools that they, they wanted to teach. But for me, even within that 13-week program and then, you know, right afterwards, I was convinced that I could find a way. There was a way for me to to be able to keep using, to keep drinking, and if I could just figure it out, I would be okay. I I struggled with that as much or more than anything else in terms of alcoholism. I was convinced I could find a way. And ultimately I tried everything from switching, you know, from hard liquor to or, you know, vodka was the choice, the first choice, to wine, then beer. And every single time I tried, I, I ended up right back in hell. And I guess I was just so hard-headed and convinced that I could figure it out that in the end, I finally gave up. I just had had enough. And I realized that even if I could figure out a way to keep drinking, there was no way to sustain it because every single time I thought I was in control, it would take a couple of days and I'd be right back where I was. So that day, that November 20th day, I just basically said a prayer and said, if if I could just get a couple of days here of, of being sober, I'll, I'll stay locked in. And it has worked for me. I continue every day to, to try and, you know, use the tools that I've learned and I'm never complacent. I'm always trying to learn. I've taken up daily exercise and I've really tried to figure out ways to be very healthy and true. And here I am, you know, almost hopefully going on two years now where I've been able to stay locked in. And I feel great. Jeff, I want to get to your your program that you're working, the cognitive therapy, the exercise, the, the healthy components you're doing. But back me up a little bit around November 20th, 2013. Was, was there a bottom? Did something bad happen? Or was it something that you were just sick and tired of being sick and tired? Yeah, I would say that. I mean, I, I just, I couldn't take it anymore. I the The struggle was that even if I could figure out a way, it was no way to live. Everything was about being obsessed. I was constantly obsessed, constantly thinking about it. And I could never let it go. And it was just no way to live. And everything was always about the, the next drink, where the next one was going to come from and how I was going to get it and what lie I would have to tell. And I just realized that if this didn't end, I was going to be dead. And you know, I'm not sure about how it all works with God and, and our creator and everything, but at the very least, this was no way to be given the gift of life and to just waste it away like that. There was just no way I could do that. So I had to figure out a way to let it go. And for me, you know, going back again a little bit, one of the things that that I could not handle was the, the this idea of forever. I'll never be able to drink again. I'll never be able to have fun again. I'll never be able to be able to have a drink at a bar with my friends or even just on the back porch or whatever. And all of that was just the survival part of my brain trying to tell the front part of my brain that it was it was my brain trying to survive. It was the addiction trying to survive. And 
after a few days or after even maybe a few months of, of living sober, I started to, to be able to realize that that's what that was, you know, my addiction trying to survive. Jeff, I'm going to quote you. You said, even if I could figure out a way, it's no way to live. And that is something that I wrestled with was figuring out a way that I could drink responsibly. I'm doing air quotes right now. So I could figure out a way to drink like a normal person. But then even if I did figure out a way, that would still be like a challenge type, a program of just figuring out a way to drink like a normal person. Can you imagine though, like if you did figure out a way, how miserable of a lifestyle that would be, how difficult it would be to find this miracle way. But then later on you say, and then I had to figure out a way to quit. And I don't know. I mean, congratulations on that. Like you, you got over figuring out a way to drink like a normal person. Then you got to the point, I got to figure out a way how to quit. And we all get to that point. And how important was it to you? You said it earlier, like you finally gave up and you finally figured out a way. How important is it to get to that point where you have to give up or figure out a way to quit drinking? That's a really good question. And I'm not sure. I've tried to figure out a way to, to have a perfect answer for that. And you know, even in, in the recovery, recovery elevator group, I wish there was like this perfect way for me to explain it. But even when I was going through trying to figure it out, it was all white noise to me. You know, nobody could tell me different. And I unfortunately is, are, is, is, are one of these people that had to go to the very, very bottom to actually look at death and, and understand that if I didn't stop, I was going to die. And what a waste that was going to be, you know, to, to the people that cared for me. And I always try to figure out a way, like, you know, if, if I'm talking to someone or sharing ideas or insight in the group, how I can help stop them to get to that very bottom. But I guess for me, I had to go there. I had to be that stubborn and to fight it that much in order to, to realize that I just couldn't do it anymore. Jeff, that is a magical question that has no magical answer because people ask me all the time too. In fact, I was on a patio at a restaurant yesterday trying to tell my buddy, he was like, you know, what happened on September 7th, 2014? And it's a question that really I don't have the answers to and I don't want to get involved, you know, in a conversation about like a, like a deity, but it was something of a higher power for a lack of a better term is you're just ready. There's a time when you wake up and you're actually ready to quit drinking. Cause I told myself a thousand times like, Oh, I'm, I am done drinking. But on September 7th, I was actually ready. And that was an amazing feeling. And, and walk us through Jeff. So November 20th, 2013, what was it like the following days? What was it like the first week, the first month? And the first year, talk to me about that. Uh, well, I was pretty skeptical. You know, I've been down, I've been down this this path so many times, and every every time I ended up in the same place. But but at the same time, I knew it was different. I knew that this time it was like I I'd, I'd made that promise to to God or my higher power or whatever, and as much as him to myself that okay, that's it, that that's that's the end for me. And so there was a little bit of skepticism. You know, there was like okay. How's it going to be different? But it didn't take long after the first few days to realize that this this actually was different. But at the same time, to never be complacent and to never start to drift with the idea that, well, you know, maybe I can let it slide. You know, maybe it'll be different. I just knew that I'd tried that. I'd tried that a hundred times if I'd tried it 10. And every single time I ended up miserable and a, a liar again. And I just couldn't take it anymore. I, I wrote a passage down and I... I have it somewhere, but it's basically simply I wanted to be clean more than I wanted to drink. 
for the first time, I wanted to be clean more than I wanted to be drunk. And I guess that's one of the, the switches that changed. It's funny that you, the first word that came out of your mouth was skeptical. <laughs> me, me too as well is, is we can't really envision this life without alcohol being so much better because it doesn't happen fast. Oh my gosh, it takes a long time for things to change in the positive direction. But how is your skepticism now of sobriety versus when you're le- thinking back to drinking? Well, it's like I, I can't even express the, the joy that I have. I'm free. I'm free of it. I don't think about it constantly. I mean, there's there's a big difference between being diligent and being ready and, and, and working on, on being sober versus constantly thinking and obsessing about drinking. And if it wasn't that, then it was feeling sorry for myself for not being able to. That was a huge one. And that's one that I see in a lot of other people that are struggling is how miserable they are because they have to be, somehow they've been chosen to be an alcoholic. And I'm just so thankful. I I feel free. And I don't know how else to say it other than I almost feel like I'm on the other side of this thing now. So now like if if someone were to invite me to go to a happy hour or something, I I don't have issues with it. I I don't struggle with being in the area or that atmosphere of alcohol because I sort of feel like I'm on the other side of the mirror now. And I can see it for what it is. And it's in, it's incredible to be able to feel that way after having been so fixed on it for so long. I, I can literally look at it and be free of it, and it's an amazing feeling. Jeff, I haven't looked up recently the definition of free or freedom in the dictionary, but I imagine it's got to be something just like that. Is That's a great way to describe it. I've, I've never even thought of it like that. Freedom or being free from the depths and the grips of alcohol is an amazing feeling, and I second that great word to describe alcoholism. No, that that's good. I mean, to be honest, when I saw your, your Las Vegas uh, video that you posted, that's what I could see in you. <laughs> when you said the word free and freedom, uh, I immediately thought of William Wallace and Braveheart when he yells freedom at the end of the movie. <laughs> Right before he dies, it's kind of opposite. And in our case, is is that's when we start living. But that's how it is. I have this feeling of freedom. I am free from those gates of hell. I'm not attached to it by the ankle anymore. And gosh, it's liberating. I'm so glad you said that. And I wrote down William Wallace on a yellow post-it note. And if you're listening out there, Recovery Elevator, get ready for a myriad of William Wallace references from here on moving (laughs) forward. And Jeff, you're to thank for that one. I appreciate that. Oh, you're welcome. (laughs) So Jeff, I have had emails from people who are curious about getting sober without AA. This podcast has no affiliation with AA. AA is a great program in my opinion, but it's not the only way. So talk to me about you and how you have gotten sober without AA. Was it something that you made the decision like, I want to get sober, but I don't want to go to AA or or did you try AA out and decided that it wasn't for you? Well, I knew I needed help and that was even in that, you know, right around around the the phases of just being in denial of everything. I think, you know, everyone in our shoes sort of starts to look around and see what their options are. And I want to be really careful about not being critical of AA because it's helped millions of people. And and that is not my, my mission at all. It's just that for me personally, it was, I'm not sure. I was born and raised Catholic. And maybe there's an element of that, that aspect of, of it that reminded me of of some of the negative 
aspects of being raised Catholic. I don't know. I'm not sure. But for me, I wanted it to be more of a personal thing. I, I definitely feel like I've been looking for that uh, fellowship aspect, but I can talk to some of the components that I've been doing every day. I've been definitely interested in the cognitive behavior therapy, which is essentially uh, a way to learn about how to handle your emotions, your thoughts, your behaviors. Obviously, when we're when we decide to drink, there are coping mechanisms that we ignore, don't have, or just decide not to use. And instead, we, we, we reach for that way just to feel better. So maybe it's a hard, hard day at work, or maybe it's a, a fight or whatever you're going through, you reach for that instead. And this has been one way for me to, to actually try to, to learn what I've been missing out on or what I need to get better at. So it's been a way to the the weird thing about all this is that this has turned into a blessing in some ways because now I'm actually trying to learn how to be a better person and figure out what it is I'm I'm missing. So there's there's that aspect which is huge. Um, I'm trying to be accountable to my wife that way. I'm I've gotten very much into yoga and physical activity, and I would say like in the beginning stages. I would do enough physical activity where I actually would assure that I would sleep well because that was one of the big things as I could not sleep. Uh, I've gotten into meditation. That's been huge. One of the things that that has in connection with yoga, and this is a huge thing for me, is to be present. Presence is the opposite of habit, and that connection of the body and the mind has been huge for me. That's like a way for me to be able to do both at the same time, and I can't say enough about it. Jeff, you, you mentioned earlier in your 13-week outpatient treatment area, you mentioned the word p- words mm-hmm. personal inventory. And with personal inventory, with your tools that you use to stay sober, talk to me about your personal inventory and how you use that. Or actually, tell listeners what a personal inventory is and how do you use that to help you stay sober? Well, I, I guess it's it's being honest with yourself. Part of it was was writing down consequences of, of your drinking and, and how and who it hurt and how it hurts them and how it hurt yourself and maybe some of the things that uh, you didn't accomplish as a result of your drinking. And, you know, ironically enough, a lot of this stuff is, is very similar to the 12 steps. So in some regards, I feel like I'm going through some of that, at least related to it. But the personal inventory is just a way to, like, hold yourself accountable to look at yourself and to try and figure out maybe the things that you weren't doing and how you could improve. Maybe, maybe I'm too controlling. Maybe I try to control every situation. You know, what's, what are some ways that I can try to like stop doing that? Um, health realization. One of the best uh, phrases that I came across or the one that I adhered to the most was that uh, it's just simply, I am worthwhile without proof. I'm still to this day, not sure why that stuck with me so much. But obviously, we have some self-esteem. I think as a whole, we have some self-esteem issues, and we certainly beat ourselves up from just some of the like breathtakingly bad behavior that we, that we decide to go through just to keep drinking. And, you know, the, the lies that we'll tell, the things that we'll do, all those sorts of things are what personal inventory is trying to address. 
breathtakingly bad behavior that we have done. I love it. I love it. You have mentioned the word accountable or accountability a couple times in this interview, and accountability is a major pillar of the foundation of Recovery Elevator. Talk to me about how, in your opinion, accountability or creating an environment of accountability is crucial to sobriety. Well, I guess it's it's sort of an anchor, isn't it? I mean, it's it's a way to 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 sort of hold yourself in in a spot and be able to like walk around it and say, okay, how am I doing? You know, even as I came across uh, your podcast, that was one of the things that I admired about what you were doing, Paul. Is that you? If if I if I remember this correctly, one of the reasons that you created the podcast was to hold yourself accountable, and that's a pretty that's a big thing. To yeah, be able it's to, like actually to, one of the number one reasons. So yeah, you definitely remembered that correctly. Yeah, and and that really hit home for me. And I have some maybe some more personal accountability accountability things, you know, like to, to make sure that I'm showing respect to, to my, to my life for my marriage, for my wife, you know, my best friend. So for each of us, it could be, you know, a different thing for you. It was, you know, actually putting yourself out there to that degree, which is amazing. Uh, You know, that's, that's amazing to me for other people. It would be, I need to, I need to do right by my wife. She's stuck by me. She could have left me, you know, months ago and and she's going to stick by me. Uh, being a part of the recovery uh, group online has taught me a lot about what mothers go through. What's it like to be uh, a mom and and the stigmas that, yeah, the stigma that, you know, that we all face as an alcoholic, that's like a whole nother level oh, yeah. when you're actually a mother and what people could judge you based on what they think they know. So, I mean, each of us has like this different set of personal rules, but I think that they're important. Wow. You definitely hit that one on the head. Yeah. And that was the core principle of the creation of recovery elevator was I had to create an environment of accountability. Cause like I said, I would wake up in the morning feeling like crap and say, I am done drinking for the rest of my life. And I'd like to say 5 PM or later that night, sometimes at noon I'd be drunk and holding myself accountable just wasn't getting it done. So I needed to create more accountability and voila, here came the podcast and here we are episode 29, which is unbelievable. And I've almost been sober for a year. So this whole system of accountability has worked for me. Jeff, we have reached the rapid fire round. Are you ready? Uh, I think so. (laughs) All right. Jeff, what was your worst memory from drinking? Uh, Worst memory, looking in the mirror, and uh, deciding that everything else could go and it would just be me and alcohol. Oh, that ew, that's hard because I've, I've had those memories. What's your plan in sobriety moving forward? I want to, I, I need to reach out. I need to get into the idea of uh, service for others. There's a couple ideas I have for that. One of them is to try and educate people on what happens to your brain and you know that's another important aspect of of understanding why we do the things that we do and how the different regions of the brain how one affects the other and how the frontal cortex of the brain basically you know goes out of commission that's the part of your brain that controls your decision making and if people wonder why they make these horrible decisions and why they're able to lie and do these horrible things it, it seems to me it would be really nice to be able to educate people on on what actually happens in a biological way. 
I happen to make medical animation for a living, and that's one of the things I would like to do is bring that to life for people and make that available for people to understand. Jeff, next question. What's your favorite resource in recovery? Well, obviously, uh, Recovery elevators definitely one of them. I saw a video called Pleasure Unwoven, and that actually talks a lot about what happens in a physiological sense to, to your brain. And again, it's called Pleasure Unwoven, and you can find parts of that on YouTube, actually. I also love a website called IamNotAnonymous.org or .com. I can't remember exactly. That is just a, a tremendous uh, website where if you if you need some aspect of fellowship, you can at least go out and see what other people's stories are. And it's just a website that has, you know, these random people, you know, everybody that's struggled and it has their story online. And it's a great way to connect with people. Another one is uh, therealedition.com. So, you know, I have, you know, some websites where I can at least go out and read about other people's stories and not feel like I'm uh, alone in this. Jeff, in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? My instructor during our my time, my 13-week program, uh, once said, insight doesn't mean shit if it doesn't lead to change. And that always stuck with me. I think a lot of it has to do with not being complacent. Basically, uh, do your best to learn, but, but put it into practice and work on it every day or it's not going to mean anything. I, I really like that, Jeff, because that's the same thing as saying knowledge is power. Knowledge is not power unless you do something with that knowledge. It's pretty good. I like that. And last thing, Jeff, what parting piece of guidance can you give to our listeners who are thinking about quitting drinking or are in early recovery? I would say just to not give up. I, I want to say that there there is no way, as hard as you try, there is not going to be a way for you if, if you truly suffer from this disease. There is no way for you to magically be able to figure out a way to do this. And I'm hoping and praying for anyone's sake that that's listening to not have to go to the very bottom and to, to maybe... Maybe there's a word here or there that I say or that, that, that we've said together here that helps them not have to go that far down before they seek help. That's really what I hope from this. And then you can be free from this obsession and you can be free from hating yourself and you can be free from the lies. There, there is a way you just got to give yourself a chance and give yourself some time to, to heal. Literally, your brain needs to heal. And you need to give yourself some time. For some people, that'll be days. For other people, it'll be months. But you have to trust that it's going to get better. Jeff, I want to personally thank you for helping me stay sober. And thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Recovery Elevator, thank you so much for joining us. Podcast number 29. Time flies by. That's nothing new. But when you're sober, time is starting to fly by as well. My first 72 hours, holy crap, that was terrible. I pulled out the app on my phone maybe 10 times an hour. I'd look at it and say, are you kidding me? This thing's wrong. I would tap the glass on my iPhone and say, six minutes have only passed because it feels like a freaking eternity. Shaking, sweating, mental confusion, a fog. I do not want to go back there. And that is why I'm doing this podcast, to create accountability, 
Anything that I can do to avoid going back to that lifestyle the summer of 2014, where you'll find out in the next two podcasts how serious it really got. I wouldn't be here right now if I kept drinking. That's a fact. Sober selfies. You should be proud. If you've been sober for a week, a month, 20 years, send us your sober selfies at info at recoveryelevator.com. We will brand it, put it on the Recovery Elevator Facebook page. You should be proud. You might be an alcoholic if. I've gotten a couple emails from people asking to bring back the Jeff Foxworthy-ish. You might be an alcoholic if segment of the show. So email me your funny or serious you might be an alcoholic ifs at info at recoveryelevator.com or put them on the Facebook page. And here's one for example, and this is my own. You might be an alcoholic if you're waiting at the bar for a beer. If you're not served within two minutes, you simply take matters into your own hands, reach over the bar and take your own beer. Done that about 40 times. And I've been kicked out of about 40 bars. Recovery elevator, you took the elevator down. You got to take the stairs back up. You can do this.